Father, thank you for a great reminder today to start the service off with the joy of sharing the gospel around the world. There's no culture, there's no uh, depth of sin, Lord, as we think about all the wars against the church now and gender and homosexuality and all that. There's nothing that the gospel can't penetrate. The Bible tells us, and such were some of you, you love to save. And so, Lord, thank you for the ministry in Ireland and Patty. We thank you for the good church she is tied to, elders who love the word, who church plant and give good oversight, Lord. Bless them, Lord. Lord, we thank you for all of our other missionaries. Please strengthen them. They've all suffered and they've all battled through some very difficult times, Lord, that we in Florida here have, have not. And so we pray that you would strengthen them. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for Leviticus 17. Thank you that the life is in the blood. Lord, help us see that very clearly and crystal-centric today. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus 17 as we continue our study through the Pentateuch, chapter by chapter. I like to teach verse by verse, but these it's chapter by chapter because I never get through it. Uh, but what a joy. Um, one of the things I loved on the ranch was kill day. Now, I know for many of you that might seem a little harsh, um, but kill day meant a lot of things. It, mean, it, it meant that long ago when we picked out those calves that we pulled out instead of sending to sale, and all the time it took uh, to feed them and get them fat and get them ready to go, that day was coming an end, and those dudes were going in our freezer. Um, so it was a great day. Gina did not care for it. Um, she would pull the blinds and not let the little boys see what was going on as we slaughtered cattle. Uh, but I loved it because there were so many life lessons to it. Uh, God made the animal world for man, not man for the animals. It's completely perverted in today's world, isn't it? And, and, and yet God gives these things to us. And when you have little boys on a ranch, there's just great lessons there for them to see how God provided, how things grow, how, how, how things don't evolve, that God made these, these animals at in Genesis 1 and 2, he created these, and they haven't changed, and they're still producing the same. There's so much to teach them about God. And then when it comes to death, there's always great lessons there. Um, as we killed, um, as the boys got older, they were able to, allowed, once mom gave the okay, they were allowed to come out and watch us kill. Um, and it's quite maybe disturbing to someone who's never seen it done uh when an animal of 1300 pounds goes down like a sack of potatoes and then you go and stick that artery while their heart is still pumping so that all that blood will come out of that animal and that was the goal to make the meat taste right uh all this happens by the thousands and thousands and thousands in america but you never see it because you go to Publix, <laughs> and you grab that, that off there. But there's lessons there. As that animal now bleeds out, so does the life of that animal. It comes to an end. One year we fed some lambs, and I had never done lambs before just because I'm not a huge lamb-eating fan. Um, but a neighbor convinced me to do it, and so we fed some lambs up, and he said, Scott, we kill lambs a little different. Um, we, we stick them while they're alive, and we hold them and let them bleed out. That was interesting. 
And as that lamb, we had raised him, the boys had fed him. They couldn't name our animals anything but eating names. So, you know, um, what were some of the names? Hamlet. Um, you know, different names like that. So they couldn't get too attached to them. But, but that was amazing as the boys were there and we held that lamb. And you watched that blood come out of them. And then that animal just sunk into your hands. And when the blood went out... Life went out. See, God loves life, and he knew we needed life. We're dead in our sins. One of the men in the seminary class preached Ephesians 2 last night. Did a great job. You came away going, man, were we dead on arrival. See, we needed life. And this passage here is to remind us that God's a giver of life. And he... He took his own son's blood to appease his wrath so we would no longer, as Ephesians 2 said, to be children of wrath. We'd be his own children. And the purchase price was the blood of the son. Well, this Leviticus 17 is a shorter passage, and we'll read each verse as we go through it. And, and I want you to keep in mind there's a lot of interesting things that will happen in here. Um, but it's all pointing towards that greater cross work, that greater flow of life in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at four thoughts tonight. One, God commanded one place and one way to come to him. Look at the first four verses here. Leviticus 17, 1 through 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to all the sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded, saying, any man of the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meetings to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guiltlessness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Well, notice right away that this command not only goes to Aaron, but it also goes to the people. The children of Israel here. And you'll notice in this first section, this killing of this animal is not for food. We're going to get to that in a moment here. But this is for sacrifice. And so he uses a word, a Hebrew word, slaughter here. It's used throughout the Bible for sacrificial animals. It's also used in other, other non-biblical materials of the pagans, the way they slaughtered for sacrifice as well. So, so we know he's talking about sacrifice. He's not talking about hunting or killing an animal for food at this point. Notice in verse 4 that he says, if this is done, this animal has to be brought to the doorway of the tent of meanings. Now, in the ancient world, the pagan nations that surrounded Israel, they sacrificed anywhere and any place they wanted to. Whatever their gods wanted, so they thought, these dead gods, they offered Sacrifices. They built altars in open fields. They built them under sacred trees. They built them on hills. They built them in fields. They, they had spiritual sites. And God wants now a centrality of worship. In Exodus 20, God gave the instructions uh, for how to build the altar. It was to build out of uncut stones. And then, of course, the, the instruction went on for the tabernacle and where the altar was to be placed in the courtyard and so forth. We studied all those things but in Exodus 22, Aaron builds an altar. And it's not in the temple. The temple was not yet built. But he builds an altar. And what that led to, and in fact, you'll remember that that 
he, he, he told Aaron, I mean, God told Moses, do not build an altar of cut stones. He didn't want the altar even to be worshipped. But Aaron builds this altar before the golden calf in, in Exodus 32, and the whole nation falls down in idolatry to this thing. Now they have a tabernacle. That tabernacle is built, and the glory of God is filling Israel. It's now become the centralized place of worship. Leviticus 17 carries a clear commandment that God did not want them to offer just anywhere, in any place. Each Israelite was to bring the sacrifice to the tabernacle. They were to perform the sacrifice the way God said and to go through the priesthood and no other to offer that. Now, each, each Israelite was to take this very serious. Notice in verse 4 the seriousness of this command given to Aaron and the nation. If anyone sheds blood in a sacrificial way not done God's way, the Bible says he should be cut off from his people. You can see how serious God is. Remember, this is leading towards the final sacrifice. This is all biblical theology that points to the greater sacrifice. And you can see where God is moving towards this Christ alone teaching that is going to come in the New Testament. But here, God is clearly warning the people of the power of their own flesh to try to come their own way. Try to be like those around them. This hasn't changed much in modern culture. Individualism is higher than ever, right? Be all you can be. Many, several decades ago, we had the theme that we taught kids that just to go and do anything you want. And I don't think there's anything terribly wrong with that. But the way we couched it, the way we taught it, the way we presented it, built, built them up as they were their own little gods. Now those little gods are running government. And individualism has always been a problem. It's in the heart of man. And we see it in this modern society. Through the years, people have told me, um, well, look, I'm not going to come to your church. I really don't want to hear your gospel. Me and God have a thing. Others have told me I have my own faith, and it leads me to believe what I believe God is like. Others told me I'm not religious, I don't want to be like the hypocrites in the church. I just want to follow the little voice in my head as God leads me. I think the South is unique. Um, not being raised in the South, and Gina and I only being here for a little over six years, um, was quite opening to us. We had never lived somewhere where there is a church literally on every corner. Um, but most of the Western world is very, very pagan now. I don't know, if you know how much you know that. Churches out west are far and few between. Biblical teaching churches are even farther between. And, and, and this, this culture of come as you are, um, in a sense, without bending the knee to God in this individualistic way is, has, has always been a problem in sinful man. But everything about true Christianity doesn't say that, right? True Christianity says come God's way. In fact, the Spirit leads to God's way. The Spirit would never lead any way other than to Christ alone. The Word of God teaches this. Spirit and the Word mirror each other together to lead us to the unity of understanding how salvation comes. Christ's message was always unified around a one-way path to God. True salvation 
causes people to want to assemble and do things God's way. When we teach the Bible, people go, oh, that's what God says about whatever, marriage, assembling, gathering, teaching, instruction, counseling, whatever it may be. We go, okay, that's what God's word says. We, as God's children, obey that. We delight in those things. God's people find great joy in doing things his way. One of the other sermons last night came out of Colossians 1. I think it was Brian G. And one of the things he said is he said, God, God needs to be worshipped in a pleasing way. He's in 1 Corinthians 1, 9 and 10. God, God desires us to worship him in a pleasing way. Such a difference than, well, I guess I have to come God's way. No, there's a desire to please him. And you see this being laid out. Don't go out and Offer in the fields, even though you may think that would be a good idea. Maybe you're a, you're a real outdoorsman. No, no. Come to me my way. He's establishing this as it points forward to the new covenant. Number two, God's warning of doctrine of demons and commands one directional centralized worship of himself. God warns of doctrines of demons and commands one directional in centralized worship of himself. Look at 5 through 9 with me. The reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they have been sacrificing in the opium field, that they may bring them into the Lord at the doorway to the tent of the meetings to the priest and, the sacrifice, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. The priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meetings and offer up the fat and the smoke and the smoothing aroma of the Lord. And they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statue to them throughout their generations. Then you shall say to them, any man from among the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meetings to offer to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. So according to verse 5, God at one time allowed open field sacrifices, right? We, we know this. This is one of the reasons I think I, probably our elders are in this camp, um, that we think Job was probably pre-Israel. I know there's some people that have another view of that. I think he's pre-Israel because we see him offering sacrifices for his children in case they have sinned. And there's no, there never appears to be a temple or um, a priestly line in, in the book of Job at all. And so we know this took place. We know the patriarchs offered sacrifices in unique places to God throughout the book of Genesis. But now God was centralizing the nation's worship. He's bringing it to a focus. He's establishing a place for Israel to bring their sacrifices, to honor God and to come his way. God's word here now to the nation and to us now has authority. It's not, it's not how we did things in the past, he's telling them. Not doing things the way, way your own desires are, they must be done God's way. There are a few instances later as uh, Old Testament history goes on where God seemed to authorize uh, some sacrifices. First uh, Kings 18, Elijah on the Mount Carmel. But God, God initiates that. And God says, build an altar here. We're going to show who Baal really is, that he's a dead God. And so we see that from time to time. But these all were special circumstances. God was focusing 
He was focusing worship of the nation to the tabernacle. Look at verse 7. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. Now, the Israelites, he was to come to the tabernacle, do things God's way, offer sacrifices to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And God saw that all these other sacrifices were demonic. Look at verse 7. He's making a clear distinction between the sacrifices to Yahweh only, to the temple of Yahweh only, performed by the priest of Yahweh only. He's making a clear distinction here, isn't he? And of course, this leads us to this Christocentric truth that's coming in biblical theology, all pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That that is where the spearhead of all worship all ways to God will only lead to the one way, the truth, life in Jesus Christ. Now, notice this goat demon thing. Um, most of the updated translations say something like this. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons there in verse 7. Well, the Hebrew word for goat demon is often this kind of wild goat. Um, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 43, uh, both use this term there. He, he was something of an ordinary kind of a hairy goat, but he didn't belong to anyone. In fact, in Isaiah, it uses some, a lot of the judgment passages that God will bring judgment and their houses will be turned over to the wild goat. Well, somewhere along the line, these pagan societies began worshiping this wild goat and they started to shape and form idols in the likeness of this wild goat. But there was a very demonic look to this idol. Ancient historians and archaeological discoveries have revealed that many cultures worship this goat-like God. And Israel had already proven themselves, right? They, they would fall down before an Egyptian golden bull calf really quickly. And so God knows this. And he's making it amazingly clear that, that coming to him in any other way is the doctrine of demons. Why would that be true? Because that's what Satan wants people to do. Try to come to God in any other fashion and you go to hell. It's so demonic. It's why the religions of the world that reject Jesus Christ as the Savior alone are, are held together by the demonic forces of this world. You come to Jesus through your work-based salvation, you're going to hell. And the demons applaud that. You come through your, well, I got a thing with God type of thinking, you're going to hell. And so this is demonic. And, and so the Israelites, they were, they were easily deceived once. So God is saying, look, I'm, I want you to show you how contrasting this is to my, my path of worshiping. Isn't it interesting how Satan always mimics the things God does? You can name all the false religions. You could go through them one, and you could walk into their services, and there's certain things they do just like we do. Not, not biblically sound in any way. Christ is not God in every one of them. And yet there, Satan has a way of, of encouraging and leading in a false way people to mimic the things of God. Well, we see this, right? It isn't long before the fall and Cain, Cain and Abel come into picture, right? They both have sacrifices. It's clear in, the, in Genesis 4 that 
um, Abel is coming God's way. He's bringing that, that, that lamb. He's coming God's way. And, and all of a sudden, here comes his brother. I don't want to come that way. I want to come another way. I want to come my way. I want to come through my gifts and my abilities. Before you know it, Cain's blood cries out to God. I want to talk about life in the blood. See, Satan's always mimicking God's warning them that this is a path of demonic worship. If you do not come my way, it's all around them. The Philistines, um, the Amalekites, all of them are worshiping dead gods in the fields and under sacred trees and so forth. Well, the warning hasn't changed for New Covenant believers either. We're going to get to this passage in 1 Corinthians 10. And let me read this, verse 19. Paul says, what do you mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Question mark. No, but I say that the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Do not drink the cup of the Lord and, and the cup of demons. Do not partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to young Timothy at Ephesus, and, and here he takes a different track. Now he's talking about the doctrine of demons when it comes to religious piety, religious self-righteousness. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now listen to this. By the means of hypocrisy of seared liars, liars seared in their own conscience with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage, we're going to get into that Sunday in 1 Corinthians 7, and advocate the abstaining from food which God has created to be gratefully received. So the doctrine of demons goes from this slaying of animals to, to these dead gods to a legalistic, a legalistic approach to God. Hey, we're pure. We don't engage in sexual stuff. We're, we don't eat that. That's the doctrines of demons. And so we still are challenged with this today, aren't we? Notice in verse 7 he uses a, quite a phrase here. He says, with which they play the harlot. The understanding that Israel was, the, in a sense, the covenant wife of, of Yahweh is, is evident here, right? Because if Israel was going to worship and honor and sacrifice outside of God's commands, God saw this as committing adultery. Isn't that? Can you see that in the verse? They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifice to the goat demons with which they play the harlot? See, he sees this as an adulterous affair to him, joining one to a prostitute of these demonic idols here. The term play the harlot is going to get used many times throughout the Old Testament. It points to the unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel to their God. And, and it's interesting, the term play the harlot is not only uh, talked about how they bow down to the gods of Moloch, but also to spiritist. There's several references that, that God says you played the harlot when you bowed down to spiritist. Those who called upon the demonic world for understanding of something past or present or future. But notice right after this strong charge of demonic idolatry, God repeats the commands again. 
sacrificed solely in the tabernacle. He keeps coming back, prone to wander, right? So whether you were a descendant of Abraham, the household of Israel, or you were a foreigner, notice here, who committed to following Yahweh, all the sacrifices were to come through the tabernacle to the priestly system. Remember, the tabernacle on earth was just a copy of what is in heaven. And only Jesus Christ could take us into that heavenly one. Now, God knew that all those who were strangers in the nation of Israel would have great influence. We already saw that with a golden bull calf. Well, these foreigners had become proselytes of Yahweh. So they too were subject to this. And so he keeps including them in this. Over and over we keep seeing even the alien, even the stranger, the one who has become a proselyte here, he brings them in. And you'll remember back in verse 4, he says, if they don't do this, they're to be cut off. That's a strong word, right? The word cut off here means to be, literally be rejected by Israel's community. They're to be banned and outlawed from the tabernacle. And that means there was no opportunity to be reconciled to God. And again, we knew in Old Testament the reconciliation was temporarily. It was done year after year. But you could not get to God. You were to be cut off. Very important thought. Third thought. God knows the surrounding cultures of his people. And this is really important. Again, you see God is going to address the Israelite and the sojourner with them. and The groups that were uniquely living under the rule and reign of Yahweh and his, and his word and law on the land here. Um, so he says, who, who, who eats the blood? Look at 10 through 12 here. If any man from the household of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats the blood and will be cut off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. Therefore, I say to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. Well, here this term, eating of blood, has been around for quite a time. And since ancient times, blood was used for food. It was used for ritualistic worship, pagan worships. In fact, in many cultures, they believe that if you consume the blood of another, whether animal or people, you got their life more given to you. This is still a very pagan teaching that is around cultures even today. And here we see God strongly command not to have any part of this at all. God does not want any part of that in his worship, in his tabernacle. In fact, it says he would set his face against them. This is a strong term, a bit scary when you study it. And just for the sake of time, it, it's, it's a rejection of God. It's a renouncing with hostile actions. It's always judgment. God sets his face against people. Uh, uh, you and I... By the grace of God, we'll never see that. Can you imagine the millions and buildings that will stand before God someday when he sets his face against them? This command was put into practice that all animals butchered in Israel, what we're seeing here right now in this time of Israel, is there to have their blood drained, if possible. And again, that makes great... God was very kind... A lot of things he did for the nation made great steaks. Have you ever had a steak that's super bloody? And you're like, man, what happened to this thing? It didn't get killed correctly. 
a good aged piece of meat. Now we're all getting a little hungry. Um, doesn't have blood soaking out of it because it was killed properly. And so God is just kind to the nations in a lot of ways. But not all the nations did this. In fact, the more violent nations, I read on several of these, the Scythians, the Barbarians, the Tartars, the Scandinavians, uh, I think a lot of Viking-type groups there, many of the ancient Arab tribes in the desert, drank blood of their enemies. Not only are we going to take your life, we're going to add your life to me, and I'm going to be strengthened because I'm going to get your life now to me, and the demons will be empowered by it. And the way they did it is, oh, by the way, we cut your head off, make your skull a bowl, and drink your blood that way. This is just pagan. And God wants nothing of his nation to do with this. I read a little bit when America got settled. You know, we're all very careful with Native American. They were very much into this. Very much into this. And modern day hunters are into this. I remember when I killed my first buck as a young lad with my dad. And I went back to school and was telling one of my friends I got my first buck. And they go, oh, did you drink the blood? And I go, Why? <laughs> Why would you do such a horrible thing? And I had never thought about it until I went to ask my dad. He goes, son, we would never do that. And, and in his mind, he says, that's, that's against the Bible. And I remember, dad, when we were gut out a buck and, and the blood would come out of the cavity and he would kick dirt over that. And, and you'll see that in the text as we go along. It was to honor God that the life was in that blood to return blood back to the earth. And so here, now he comes with a strong warning. Don't be like this. I'll set my face against you. So this, prohibit, this prohibiting against eating or drinking the blood became an important aspect of, of the, what we call now kosher food. And, and kosher food's interesting when you study how the Jews handle animals and how they kill even today. Uh, all of their meat has to be killed in a unique way where the carotid artery is stuck and they actually have a time, they, they have to measure a, a clock ticking how long they let the blood drain out of that animal before they pursue the butchering process. And that just allows the heart to empty out the blood. But the sacrificial system, when you come to it, that animal didn't, you know, when we, when we go out hunting, we shoot an animal and then you get over there and you die because you're scared to go with him. He's still alive, you know, he'll come up and beat you up. But, um, but there on the altar, that animal, that bull, um, that goat, that, that lamb, um, and even smaller doves and stuff, uh, mostly the livestock, was bound. And then that priest would stick that artery, and that heart would be pumping, and it would pump that blood out, and there they would catch this. Fascinating to read um, when Solomon offers, after he completed the temple um, that David wasn't allowed to build, how many thousands of bulls they offered that day. Do you know there's over 10 gallons of blood in an average size cow? I, I mean, if a cowboy's got to think about this, maybe you don't, but I'm thinking, you know, 2,000 bulls, you know, 10, oh my goodness, that's a river. I, I think God wanted them to know the life was in the blood. <laughs> don't take what belongs to me. And so. As these animals were put on this altar, they were stuck, they bled out to death. But that was not the way in the pagan world. The pagan world, they were brutal. In fact, when they offered to their pagan demon goat gods, they often killed them out of anger. In fact, many of their sacrifices were strangled to death. Anybody remember where this is talked about? 
How about Acts chapter 15? We go to Acts chapter 15, we find the Jerusalem council, and there they're telling these new Gentile Christians in Antioch and surrounding areas that they shouldn't eat the blood and they shouldn't, they shouldn't eat things offered to idols. Acts chapter 15, verse 28 through 29, for it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burdens than these essentials, right? Some of them were saying, well, they've got to keep the law, they've got to do this, they can't eat that, they can't do all these things. But they came down, these leaders in, in Antioch said that abstain from things sacrificed to idols, don't participate in that, and from blood, don't eat or drink that. And then they said from things, now listen to this, things strangled. That's just horrible. To strangle an animal, to sacrifice to a demonic god. And yet that's the way the, the, the culture did it. And so, now, now I don't believe this was a uh, Acts 15, and I think Guy's probably with me on this, that this is some universal command for, for Christians at all places and all time. I actually think that these Gentile Christians were given this, that they wouldn't be um, stumbling blocks to the Jews, and they would be able to evangelize. Because that would be a very hard stumbling block to a Jew that you received Jesus Christ and you're over there down at the market getting a demon goat for dinner. That would be hard for them. Remember, we're under the new covenant. But I think that's what that was about. But, but the point here is God knows the cultures that surround us. And I, I, I find great comfort in this. So here's his nation, his group of people. He's, he's brought them out of Egypt. He's cared for them. He's fed them. He's done all this. Now he's given a tabernacle where he can reside among them, even though they've turned against him numerous times. He's there to reside with them so he can reconcile regularly with them so they can have a relationship with him. And he knows these pagan cultures around him, and he's protecting them from sin. He's protecting them from that. And I, and I find great comfort today that God is protecting us, Riverbend Church, from pagan cultures around us. And pastors aren't afraid to preach, hey, here's what the Bible says about marriage and gender and all these things that are pressing in so hard on us. God wants us protected from, from the ways of the pagan world. They bring nothing but devastation and death. They bring disgrace to the things of God and his, and his own uh, earthly kingdom that's here. Now notice in verse 11 uh, this phrase that we all love so much, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I think what God's doing is he's clarifying the spiritual significance of the blood of these animals that would be sacrificed and the blood of a person. And again, the pagans looked at this principle of life in the blood and they said, well, if life's in the blood, let's have this. I'll live longer, I'll be stronger. When I was years ago in, in the athletic world, um, we were at a contest somewhere, and I remember someone starting to share with me why they were blood doping. Um, blood doping became a big problem because people would take out blood before a big event six weeks before, and then as they got up towards the event, they would put that blood back in. Girls would time their uh, cycles um, when they had a higher flow of blood within them so they could perform at higher levels. See, man, man is just consumed with himself. When at all cost. But God says, wait a minute here, life's in the blood. And he wants his people to recognize that if life of the flesh is in the blood, it therefore belongs to God and not to them. It belongs to the giver of life. And brother and sister, does this not make some things very important to us when it comes to abortion? Which is murder. <laughs> and murder. 
which is murder <laughs> and slaughtering somebody. I mean, you remember in Cain, I've talked about this in Genesis 4, when Cain kills, and often the word is translated kills, but some of the better translations say he slew him, the exact same word for sacrifice. You want to sacrifice God? You want a blood sacrifice? I'll give you one. See, this is what man does. And he's still doing this. Babies just slaughtered in the wombs of women. And then, folks, be careful getting old in America. You're a hazard to our health care system. It won't be long. They're already doing this in many places. Euthanasia is, is, is popular, and all of these things are heinous against God because here he's showing us the emphasis that life belongs to God, and it solidifies God's stance against a person who mishandles the blood, mishandles life. He says it'll be cut off because life depends on blood, and, and it's preserved by blood, and it's nourished by blood. And, and just think about this hematological, I think I got that word, hematological system that God Create it. You're, you're sitting there. My heart's probably pumping a little more than yours. But, I mean, we're all got blood going through us, don't we? We're alive. We're living. Because of God's design system of the blood. We bleed. We die. That's how God made it. And so when the blood leaves the body, life leaves the body. Because life of the creature is in the blood, God designed the sacrificial system where blood makes atonement for another's person. It was the only place where God want that blood dealt with in this particular way. Notice in verse 11, he says, And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, not to be messed around with, not to be drunk or sold or offered to demons or anything else. It's for atonement. And I love that phrase. As I was studying this, I thought, oh, Lord... Man, does that point to Jesus Christ. I have given the altar of the cross where my son will bleed for your soul. That's, that was the final altar, isn't it? There our Lord bound and bled for us. And so this was significant. This is so Christocentric. This is biblical theology flowing towards this shed substitutionary blood on the altar done in the courtyard and this is where god god wants us to understand the innocent victim and the blood that flows on behalf of the sinner and and even in the old testament setting as temporary as it was it was the means to reconciliation and when you brought that lamb or that bull or whatever that was for that burnt offering and sin offering and penance offering and so forth and we've studied all these things your your faith was in God's way that that animal and its blood would appease God um, and, and you would be reconciled with him. You came in faith. And so when we look at the pagan world that rejects God's plan of salvation and comes only through, it only comes through God's son's shed blood, when we see a pagan world that rejects it and says, what, believe in a dead Jew who hung on a cross? You're kidding me, right? Or you go to the religious world who tries to come to the workspace salvation. All of it rejects the greatness of the Son's blood atonement. And so Hebrews, the writer says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, 29, how much, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve 
who tramples underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. When you try to add something to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you insult grace. What a, what a, a major passage to remember. You, 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 you dirty up what God intended to be pure for our eternal covenant relationship with him. Fourth and last thought, God's law makes a provision for the provider of the household. Look at 13 through the end of the chapter, 16. So when the, any man and the son of Israel or the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour its blood he should pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. For as, for as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore, I say to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. When a person eats an animal which dies or is torn by beast, whether he is native or alien, he shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and remain unclean until evening, then he will become clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear its guilt, his guilt. Well, once again, you see that this command goes to everyone. Anybody living in within the covenant community of Israel under the kingdom of God and his word here. But notice the hunter. I like this. this is, I think this is fun a little bit here. The hunter is, is to pour that animal's blood out and cover it with dirt. My dad taught me that. I think it was sanitary too and good idea, but blood returns to the earth. And you think about hunting in the ancient days, it was a little different. You don't have your, you know, ot six out there shooting from 400 yards away. You're getting really close with a bow and arrow or maybe a spear or javelin of some sort. Um, uh, as I read a little bit on this, they used to club some animals. You know, and they'd fall down in pits or they would use nets or snares. This is how I got to them. And so that means that at times you were not able to bleed them out like you would in the normal butchering process. We all know this. If you've ever been hunting and you kill something and you, it runs off and you finally catch up with it and it's been dead for a little while, you're not going to bleed that animal out. Right? It's it just you can't do it. But when you open that animal up in the abdomen, their blood will coagulate there and you can pour that blood out. You can cover it with the dirt. And so in a sense, God was reminding even the hunter, think about this, God was reminding even the hunter to honor the blood of that animal because that blood carried its life as he made provision for his family. And the blood gave the animal life. Now it returns back to the ground. So I wrote this in my notes and as I thought about this from a hunting standpoint of view, God wanted Israel's hunters to be men of faith. Not brutal men. I, I, I mean, hunting, and my family's a big hunter. My boys have taken it to another level. Um, uh, we've been a large hunting family for many years. But there was always such a great respect. I, I never can re not remember with my family killing a nice buck or an elk or something and not thanking the Lord for that provision of that animal um, and the joy it was to try to outsmart it and then the meat that would come from it. And I think God wanted Israel's hunters to be men of faith and to, and to even handle this animal's blood in a right way. And even in the field, hunting 
was to provide a provision for their, their family, but to lead them to the presence of God's holiness. God said to do this this way, and they were to do it this way. I think that's excellent. It all points to the sanctity of life that our God loves. The final two verses are very interesting. I call this the roadkill law. Nothing out of that one? <laughs> Verse 15, when any person eats an animal which dies or has been torn by beast or hit by a chariot, that was my interpretation there, where he is, where he is a, whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and he remain unclean till the evening when he will become clean. Um, again, I, I called, I wrote in my Bible this roadkill law. Um, if you came upon an animal that had died naturally or by accident, you could eat it. I think this is really a provision for the poor in a lot of ways. Several people I read um, hint it towards that. Um, but in most cases, when you came across the, you know, the dead whatever that was run over by something or torn up by something, you're not going to drain the blood out of it, right? It's all coagulated. It's, it's in its veins and so forth. But the Bible says, look, you can eat this roadkill, just bathe at night. Now, I thought those were good principles. If you're going to eat roadkill, you probably should take a bath. <laughs> and, and you're going to be unclean for a while, but God provides <laughs> for this um, in such a great way. And I think it's interesting to end the chapter that way. But let me, let me finish with just two thoughts. Sanctity of life. This passage is soaked with the sanctity of life. And even as these animals that were innocent, remember, they're innocent. They're unblemished. They're, that go to, this, go to the altar in the tabernacle. They're unblemished. They're young. They are, they are a picture of something looking forward towards Christ. These innocent animals give their life up for another. And so God is very determined to help us understand the sanctity of life. Life is in the blood. God is the giver of life. To take a life outside of Romans 13 mocks God and the owner of life. That's why we keep standing, brothers and sisters. We will never give up on battling abortion, battling euthanasia, battling these things that man so quickly is moving towards and has been for many times. And then finally, the last thought, don't miss the substitutionary blood of Jesus Christ. He's the final offering. Bound on the cross, bled so you and I would not be just pure at night when nighttime comes, but pure. We would be clean, pure, stand in the presence of God, blameless, unblemished because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for time in the Word today. Thank you for these Old Testament passages. They're really fun to study, Lord. We really see your hand and your care over the nation Israel in so many ways. But more importantly, Lord, we see this flowing towards this Christocentric direction. We see the fulfillment fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his one way, one offering, one way, no other way but through him. Can you get to the Father? And so, Lord, thank you for the reminder of this, Lord. And may we contemplate these things as we lay our heads down tonight. Remind ourselves that life is in the blood. Eternal life was in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gave it to us freely. What a blessing. Lord, thank you for Patty. Bless her, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.